Well, good morning again. Take your Bibles out if you would. We're going to, what uh, when I taught history, sometimes we'd call this drill and kill. We're going to be all over the Bible. Uh, we're going to look at some different passages. It is really hard to take the life of someone like Saul, who became known as Paul, and to do a fly-by overview of his life in one Sunday. But I've taken some key passages that I think really speak to us and will speak to us. And some things, if I was going to say, what would Paul say to the church today? Well, it's all through there, but I want to highlight a couple of key areas. So uh, get your Bibles ready. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 7, if you would, and we're going to start there. How many of you have ever been so convinced that you were right? You knew you were right. I mean, you were going to take that mountain and you were going to die on it. Only to later find out you were dead wrong. And you would have died, or maybe you did die, on that mountain. And you thought it was a matter of principle, and you were sure you were right. Have you ever had that happen? Isn't that a humbling experience? It's no fun, is it? Well, I want to tell you something. You're in, you're in good company. Yeah, actually, you're in great company because probably one of the greatest figures, if not the greatest figure outside of Jesus himself, believed he was right. He knew he was right based on the information that he had, or so he thought. But as we're going to find out, he ultimately became wrong. Paul is definitely God's man. He later become known as the apostle of grace. It's a great story. The turnaround is so amazing. His coming to Christ is so compelling, it's recorded at least three times in kind of a testimony form. It's recorded in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. And then if you read the book of Galatians and throughout the book of Acts, you'll see bits and pieces that begin to like a puzzle fill in more insights and gives greater understanding to his life. He's a great man. Second Corinthians 5.10 says this, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ someday, and we're going to give an accounting for the good and the bad that we've done. Now, for the Christ follower, it's going to be a little bit different because it doesn't have to do with the issues of heaven or hell. It's just going to deal with the rewards that we're going to receive. Isn't that wonderful? But I often thought, imagine the Apostle Paul. We're in this big gathering. I mean, let's just exponentially go beyond this. And all of a sudden, you got Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the Father. you got Michael the archangel. He pulls out this scroll and he unrolls it. And all of a sudden, he says... The Apostle Paul, come forth. And all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul kind of, you know, when his name was changed to Paul, which means small. And we don't know if that meant he was small in stature, or maybe it's because God just kind of smalled him down from his early life. But he comes forward humbly because nobody understands more about the grace of God than Paul. And all of a sudden, the angel... The archangel Michael begins to unroll this scroll and people are waiting to see what he's going to say. And he begins to read off the apostle Paul saved on the Damascus road, wrote 13 books of the New Testament, missionary, evangelist to the disciples, spoke the truth, corrected heretics, defender of the truth, evangelist to the lost, beaten and left for dead numerous times, finally... At the end of his life declares, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. And he's beheaded a martyr for God. Can you imagine? Heaven, all of a sudden, it's quiet. And you hear this forklift with all of these crowns. Boom! Drops right there. And Paul takes them and he passes him off, gives him to Jesus. And Jesus says, wow, well done, the good and faithful servant. He's a great man. Now you're next. <laughs> Angel leans over and go, oh, Lord, this is him. <clears throat> Pulls out a little piece of paper. 
saved in 1977. Went to church. Well, the nice thing is, uh, the Lord will still say, well done, uh, the good and faithful servant. But I often think, I don't want to be behind the Apostle Paul on that great homegoing day. You know what I mean? He's that great. And I want you to understand that because most of us are aware of the great things that he's done. But some of us may not have all of the historicity or the historical context of where he came from. So I want to read and make some comments. So let's start in Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 54. Actually, start at Acts chapter 7. Well, this is important at the beginning. Starting at verse 1. Church now has been birthed. Acts chapter 2. They're, they're moving out and things are moving and happening. Notice what happens here at the beginning of chapter 7. It says, then the high priest said, these are the religious leaders of the day. Are these things so? Now, Peter, excuse me, Stephen now is going to be talking and addressing these people concerning the things of God. And, and he begins this talk, and he says this, verse 2. And Stephen says, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia and before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and go forth from your relatives and come to the land which I will show you. This is Stephen. Now, if you skip ahead, because he gives this incredible historical talk to really help these people understand the life of Christ and what's taking place. Let's fast forward ahead to verse 54 of chapter 7. Now, these people listen to this, and they're ticked. So when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That's what the Word of God can do. And it says they gnashed at him with their teeth. You can see it, they're grinding. They're going, you've got to be kidding me. And you're going to see what their next responses are. But he, speaking of Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Notice what he opened with. He started talking about the glory of God. And now guess what happens? Look at this. Now he got to see the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the open heaven and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now notice what they're doing, these religious people. And then they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. Literally, they, 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 it's like they plugged their ears. They weren't going to listen to this anymore. And they ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is who we're talking about today, who later became Paul. And it says they stoned Stephen. He becomes the first martyr of the Christian church. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice. Lord, don't don't charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He had died. Now, continuing on in chapter 8, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. Remember, he's the one that they came and laid the robes before, the coats before, as these people stoned. So he says, yeah, this is good. This is all right. But notice what continues on with Saul. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. But as for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, and he committed them to prison. See, this is a bad man who thought he was good and thought he was right. See, Paul didn't start out great. He started out as an enemy of the first early church. He thought he was right. He literally thought he was serving God by putting out the embers and the fire and the flames of Christianity that had begun to spread throughout the region. He was protecting Judaism. Well, we we probably, scholars believe that 
Saul first encountered Stephen probably in Acts chapter 6 where, where Stephen stands up and he debates some of the religious leaders and it says they could, that in, in their brilliance, in their knowledge of the word, they literally couldn't stand up against the wisdom that Stephen brought because he was full of God's spirit. And then we pick it up here. Stephen starts his talk by talking about the glory of God. And then at the end, guess what? He gets to see the glory of God. He's stoned by this outraged mob. It literally says there that they rushed him. The word's hormao. And it's, and, it's, and it's the same word that speaks of this intense fury. It's a word that described the mass rush, the, the mad rush of the swine over the hill and into the Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus sent the demon and the legion of demons from one man into the pigs. That's how upset they were. They were enraged. They were furious over this man who is speaking of the things of God. In our vernacular, they lost it. They went after it. Now, do you see, did you catch how Stephen was able to die in peace? He's looking up at Christ. He's not lashing out at others and his accusers. Why? Because he saw Jesus, who was the lamb slain for all of our sin. You, you understand that when we see Jesus, when we stand before him, he, he will still have the scars. And I can't help but believe that as he stood there and he looked up and he saw Jesus, he saw the scars that saved a wretch like Stephen. In all of his goodness, he realized, oh, Jesus, you did that for me, for these people. And so he begins to speak love and forgiveness to them. Don't lay it at their charge, Jesus, just like it wasn't laid at my charge. And you covered for me. See, friends, that's what happens so often in our lives. When difficult times come, when attack and accusations come, guess what? We will either respond one way or the other. And if you're looking up at Jesus, if you can see Jesus and what he has done for you, it will make it possible. You will be able to move in a new dimension of power because of God's spirit within you for what he has done. Because you'll remember, Jesus was slain for you. And he gave his life for you. And you'll begin to see his glory manifest in you, through you, and around you. But you take your eyes off Jesus, and instead of looking up and you look around, you know what happens? You become uptight. You become combative. You become antagonistic. And you remember every wrong, and you'll set yourself to make it right. That's why our focus on Jesus is so important. See, Paul probably didn't bloody his hands by throwing a stone. He was just there. But the Scripture is clear. He gives full consent and approval. He, is, he has this unrelenting desire, this fury to destroy Christianity and stamp out the flames of the early church. In Acts chapter 3, you saw the word there, uh, destroy, and you saw the word havoc. The word havoc is, literally means it's the picture of a word that describes the wounding of an animal. And that when this animal is wounded, what does it do? It goes on a rampage. And isn't that really pretty true of what happened with Saul? He, he, he wreaks havoc on the church. Why is that? Well, I, I think it's because he's probably wounded. Can I tell you something? That's what religion does to people. And I'll, and I'll get to this in a minute, but religion has a tendency to, to, to hurt and to wound, to sicken, and to really skew people. And there was probably no more religious person than the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see that because he was a man with a great religious resume, an impeccable religious pedigree. Look at Philippians chapter 3 real quick. This is a number of years later. This is after he has been able to experience the love, the grace of God. Over time, he's now in prison writing letters to the church he gives a little bit more of a personal testimony of what's taking place. He's writing here to combat heresy and the heretics of the day. And he starts calling them names. He calls them dogs. 
But then he begins to talk about, this is where I came from, you religious people. And he says in verse 2, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus. But listen, we're not going to put any confidence in the flesh, in ourselves, who we are. See, that's what religion does. It's all about what I can do, what I'm doing. Get my checklist out. Check it off. But he says, we're not going to do that. And then he says, because if we did do that, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. Now, he's kind of bragging there, but it's true. He's saying, I am the most religious of the religious. And as a matter of fact, I've got the credentials that will really impress you. As a matter of fact, come into my office and let me just show you the wall of all of the things that I've got that will impress you. And so now he's going to list them, not as a point of pride, but really as a point of saying it's nothing. And he says these kinds of things. I'm more so, circumcised on the eighth day. I'm the stock of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law. I was blameless. I did it all. I was good. I was a poster child. But then notice what he says in verse 7. But what things were of gain to me? Those plaques on the wall, I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Underline that word rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own because of what I do, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith, not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So Paul's writing and he's warning these false teachers who want to undermine Christ's work and and God's grace. And they're boasting of the importance of still being circumcised. Uh, and Paul says, listen, I'll put my record up against yours anytime. You want to you, you, you you, you cross swords spiritually? I'll show you where I come from. And he begins to go through all of these things. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. What he's saying there is, I got the badge. I got the covenant sign of what it means to be a child of God under the old covenant, the old religious system. I followed it perfectly on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, when, it, when, when people wanted to lift up their heritage as Israelites or to be distinct and separate from others, to raise themselves up, they would always refer to themselves as Israelites. And Paul is saying here that I'm part of that select group, chosen by God himself. I'm a purebred man. I'm the real deal. And of the tribe of Benjamin, many leaders come from this tribe. And it's possible that Saul was named by his parents after uh, the first king of Israel, Saul. He was a member that come out of the tribe of Benjamin of the elite, and many leaders came out of there. He says, I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrews. I'm an Orthodox Jew. I spoke the language. Man, I lived the customs. I had it dialed in. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a select group. They were the elite of the elite. They kept the minutest of detail of the law. These guys, they were known for the holiness and their piety. Man, they dotted all the religious I's, crossed all of the religious Paul studied under one of the most respected rabbis of that day, Gamaliel. That was a, a credential in itself. He had all of this stuff behind him. He learned that the way of, sec- of acceptance with God was obedience to the law of God. Not just the written law with its 613 precepts, but the oral tradition that had been passed down and tra- transmitted by generations to all the rabbis. He knew his stuff. He lived his stuff. He even says in verse 6 there of Philippians, I was faultless, blameless. But before God comes and rocks Saul's world, any Jew who would have seen Saul walking by would have said, Whoa, there is a holy, good man. 
a godly man. Saul knew that. He was esteemed by others because he, well, practiced and lived the law so well. But Paul brings us to a point, loved ones, where he says something very clearly throughout his message. The more religious and the more right you become, you know what? The more you will look down and point fingers at others. And like Paul, guess what? The more you'll attack. Because you'll think you're right. What you do is right. Everything about you is right. And everything is wrong about everybody else. Or many things. See, that's what religion does. It wounds us. It skews us from being able to see people as God sees them. What happens is, as you'll see it with so many people, is they become radical with their belief in, 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 in the way they, they deal with truth, and ultimately it becomes a cause which becomes radically wrong. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, before he talks about love, he says, listen, you can speak with great faith. You can have faith that moves mountains. You can speak and prophesy. You can speak with other tongues. You can give yourself as a martyr. But if it becomes a cause and it isn't love-based, it's religion and it means nothing. And that's exactly why Paul would say that, because he realized there was nothing of his life but religious stuff until Jesus Christ knocks him down. So he has what I would call a close encounter of the best kind. Look over at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. This is the powerful, precious, wonderful story of Paul coming to Christ. Notice what it says in verse 1, Acts chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the followers, the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked for letters from him in the synagogue of Damascus so that, he, uh, so that if he found any who were of the way, the, the, the way is of the way of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, those Christians also talked about the way being, this is the way to eternal life. Jesus referred to himself as the way. So he's saying, if there's any of these people, can I just have permission to just kind of bully them? whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now you're thinking, oh, oh, oh. I thought Jesus was dead. No, or, or at least in heaven. Well, he is. But catch the connection. He's saying, Saul, you're doing this against my people, my bride. And, and you know what? You're doing it against me. Why? Why are you doing that? And Paul said, who, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goad. So, Paul trembled and astonished. He said this, Lord, what do you want me to do? Underline that. That is critical. What do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, I want you to arise and go to the city, and you'll be, you will be told what you must do. And that's how God works in us. It's kind of this progressive thing where it's not, he doesn't just kind of give us this dump truck of stuff to do. He begins to reveal it to us little bits at a time. And now the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did he eat or drink. See, so often, sometimes God has to throw us off course to get our attention, doesn't he? Sometimes when you are going on your way, and you're asking God to bless your efforts, God stops you and he gets in your way and he rocks your world and he lets you know in no uncertain terms that your efforts and your way have nothing to do with his way. 
I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going through that. There's some things within my soul and spirit right now that are being totally recalibrated. And, and you'll hear about them over the course of the season ahead. But it's something powerful when all of a sudden God rocks your world. And it can happen in different ways. It can happen in very positive times. It can happen in very negative times. It can happen when you go to the doctor and all of a sudden you get a report. It can happen when all of a sudden you have a wayward child or, or a wayward spouse. And it rocks your world. And God says, I don't believe God did that to get your attention, but God will definitely get your attention and begin to, to do some work in you as he did Paul. That's what God works. See, in Acts 9 here, we read about how God rocked Saul's world. Some may not know all of his story, but you're familiar with Paul, who started out as Saul, and he, he became God's man, what we call the apostle of grace. Notice in verse 3 there, it says, A light shone on Saul. This hardened man, his heart was hard toward God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, had, he was full of religious zeal. But Christ comes in his light and he breaks through unexpectedly, unpredictably. And you know what? He initiates it. You know, how many of you are sitting here today and you can say, that happened to me. I was just walking. And all of a sudden, God broke into my world and there was a new light to the dark areas of my life. And that's how God works. God is always initiating. There's a thing called provenient grace, a grace that goes before. It's a theological term that talks about the wooing and the work of God's Spirit in us and upon us. And that's why it is so important, not only that, well, that we have responded, those who have responded, but that we're aware of it with the people around us, that God's at work. And, and He may use us to be that light. And that's why how we live is important. What we say is important. Because, see, John 1, 9 says this, that there's a light, speaking of Jesus Christ, that lights every man. Every person in this world will have some experience, some expression of the light of God. Now, it's probably not going to be as radical as Paul's. But somewhere, somehow, some way, God says every man will experience the light of Jesus Christ. Because people say, well, well, Pastor, what about... You know, what about all the pygmies and, you know, the aborigines in Australia or all the people in the rainforest, you know, they never hear. I, I can't fully understand all of it except I know this. Jesus says, I'm going to be the light that somehow, some way is going to light every man and they'll be without excuse. But sometimes we get to be that light, loved ones. Now notice in verse 4 there, chapter 9. What does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? And notice the repetition of the name. Saul, Saul, he's getting his attention. He's, he's, man, it's like a stun gun here. Pay attention. I want you to hear this. Last week, Blake noted how we're never more like Satan than when we accuse, backbite, and gossip and attack others. Why? Well, because that's the demonic influence around us. Revelation twelve eleven says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Now, I get tired of saying this, but can I just say it again? I am still amazed at all of the stuff that I hear. You're never more like Satan than when you backbite, gossip, talk down, and put down. Okay? That, that was clearly stated, well put last week. Now, let's take it just one more step. Because now Jesus is telling Paul, when you do that kind of stuff, when you, when you persecute, when you speak against, when you put down people in the church that are blood-bought, love Jesus Christ, you know what Jesus says? <laughs> You're not just doing that to Deb Erdo or Trina Riley or Whitney. You're doing it to me. Now, I don't know what's worse, to be called like the devil or to say, wow, my words and my things that I'm saying are really attacking Jesus Christ. Either way, loved ones, I think we get the point. 
God is serious about the way that we treat one another. And you get verse 6, and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? This is the essence of a conversion, what we call a conversion, someone coming to Christ. We see very clearly here. Uh, remember the word, repentance, metanao. It, it means to change your mind, to do a 180, to go a different direction. And right here, verse 6, it starts with Paul. After he gets knocked down, the light of God comes to him. What's he saying? Lord, what do you want me to do? See, when people truly encounter Jesus, things will change. And, and we've got to understand this, loved ones. Repentance is not a one-time happening. It should be a lifestyle. It is not a destination. It is a journey. And Paul says, Saul here says, what do you want me to do? And then see, okay, I want you to get up and I want you to go do this. See, we, 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 we do, we get this skewed idea about repentance and it's, oh, we come forward and we cry and we do this and we do that. But no, you don't ever have to cry. You have to change your mind. You have to reorient your life. You have to go a different direction. And, 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 and I got to tell you, it's this simple. But it should be happening like this. And I, and I hesitate to even use this because some of you will go, oh, pastor, you're so hard on yourself. No, I'm not. And, and Jesus isn't either. But sometimes we forget. Listen, can I tell you something? And, and I'm not, and I got to be careful. I don't want this to sound prideful. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not tempted by women. You know, like, oh boy, I hope I don't have an affair this week. And listen, it's not because I'm good or better than anybody or anything like that. I, I'm not tempted by, oh boy, I hope I, maybe, oh my, where's the offering? Maybe I can get a few extra bucks. That, that doesn't tempt me. Never has. I don't deal with, oh, well, I'd like to kill Blake this week, you know, or. <laughs> where's, where's George? I think I'll take him out, you know. But I love Amor, you know. That's not hard. I, I don't deal with those kinds of things anymore. For, I mean, not that they could come. I deal with little stuff like this. I sent an email to somebody recently, and I wasn't, I was trying to make a point, but a day later I went back and reread it, and this is what the Lord said. That does not smack of humility. There's a statement in there that smacks of pride. So now I go, okay, <laughs> I'm working on humility, Lord. And I was talking to somebody else, and we were talking about this whole pride humility thing. I'm sitting there having an ice cream with this person, and all of a sudden goes, God goes, go back and make it right. It's not that big a deal, Lord. Yes, it is. See, friends, it's the small things in our life that will always lead to the bigger. And I know someone's going to go, oh, Pastor, you're so hard. No, I'm not. Jesus isn't hard on me because he wants me to become this light and this expression of who he is. And whenever there's those things that people see and hear and smell, it begins to diminish the light of God. And that's why Paul says, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm going to do it. You want to know if you're repenting? It's because every day or every week that God's speaking to you and you go, okay, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm going to change that, Lord. I'm going to reorient my thinking. I'm going to change the direction of what I'm doing. And I'll go back and take care of that. I won't just blow it off because it's not that big of a deal. It's clear from this point on, Paul is not in charge of the plans that he has for himself anymore. He will never be the master of Paul or of his life again. The voice of Jesus comes speaking to him. It's a clarion call making this very clear. Paul, we're going a different direction. And as the direction of his life changed, he was no longer just a good man doing wrong things because of his religious heart. Now he became the apostle of grace doing what God called him to do. And he wrote almost half of the New Testament. And we base our life and our religion on God's word because of some of the things that were revealed to him through the inspiration 
of the Spirit of God. That's what God can do. The grace of Jesus Christ can come and trump every religious part of our life. And and, and I I really think, loved ones, that if if Paul could speak to us, and he does, he is, he has, but if he were standing up, he would say, press into the grace of Jesus. Don't be religious. So what would he say? Well, I, I think, first of all, he'd say, listen, don't forget we all have a past and we all have a hope for a better future. Listen to what this is Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1. He says, I thank God, I, th- I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Listen, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Get this. Of whom I am the worst. What a powerful statement. A guy's writing the Bible. Now, he doesn't know it at the time, but he's writing to all these churches. And he goes, listen, I am the worst of the worst. I don't believe in a worm theology, but how many of us, the last time we just come before God and said, God, you know, thank you, you love me, because I'm just, I'm just not, I'm not where I need to be because of all you've done for me. When was the last time we come and just kind of took that kind of low posture and we really understood that, you know, Lord, if it for you, this is going to be a tough road to go. I don't know about you, but it's so easy probably to go to work, be in the neighborhood, look at people, and go, oh, man, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. I'm sure glad I don't talk like them. I'm sure glad I don't act like them. No, no, not Paul. Not Paul. Jesus. I can't believe you put me into service. I'm the worst. See, the closer Paul drew to Jesus, the more he understood the extent extent of his sinfulness. He understood the big things, but then he understood the small things, the undercurrent of religiosity. And friends, we deal with that in America. We've got our own Americano Christianity. But when you experience great grace, you will live with great humility. And we can't forget that, loved ones. You have a hope and a future. Believe it and live like it. Humbly before God. Don't settle for a counterfeit. I think Paul would definitely say, don't settle for a counterfeit. Religion never leads to humility or joy. Because the better you do at keeping the rules, guess what? The more arrogant and self-focused you will always become. That was Paul's issue. Here's what I did. Now I'm going to go kick booty on the church. Can I tell you something? Some of us probably need to repent of a religious heart. See, too many sinners think that the call to repent, you know why they probably don't want to come? Is because they're afraid we're going to make them like us. And they're thinking, I just want Jesus. I don't want to become like that. Thank you for those of you who laughed. Because this is hard sayings now, but it's true. We've got to deal with it all the time. See, when we call sinners to repent, the religious cheer. We call the religious to repent, they get mad. Read the New Testament. See, when you hear stuff like this, you want to test? If you're mad, if you, if you get mad about this, can I say you've got a religious heart? But if you're broken and you say, oh, God, thank you for reminding me, you're probably in a good place. See, how many believe this is God's word? I mean, really believe this is God's word. It's, 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 it's totally inspired, and it's been given to us to reprove us, to correct us, to build us, to shape us. 
you know, if we really believe that, there's some things in here that it says that, yeah, it's kind of outlandish stuff that we don't always think about when we read. But it uses some pretty descriptive language. Kind of stuff you're not going to see on the flannel graph board when you grew up. They're not going to talk about it in a home school or a church school. But I believe that this is God's word, every bit of it, for you and for me. And sometimes I don't really like what it says, but I know it's, it's God. But can I just share a couple of things that it says in here when it talks about religion? Because religion is always the counterfeit to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is so easy to begin to move from this, oh, Jesus, I've been baptized. I love you. Thank you. And we begin to move into religion. This is what Paul says. Listen to this. Verse 8. More than that, after he's listed all of his credentials, his impeccable stature, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things. Listen to this. I, count, I consider them filth. Some of your translations will say rubbish. Some might even say dung. Paul states after listing his exploits, he was Pharisee of the month numerous times. He had half the Bible memorized, had all the plaques, and he says, you know what? All of that stuff, I can't tell you what the word is. It's skabala in the, in the Greek. I can say that. So you want to swear out there at work and nobody knows what you're saying? Just go skabala. <laughs> That's the word. It means excrement. It means feces. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm trying to help you understand. That's what God says. That's what Paul says about religion. It stinks. And everything that I've gained, everything that looks good on my account, stinks. It's a mess. You want another one? Listen to this. Isaiah 64, 6 says this. We all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You know what that polluted garment is? It is a garment that has been stained by a menstruation cycle. Oh, pastor, can you say that in church? Well, I hope so. God said it in his word. But he's, he's making a point. He is saying, when you bring this religious stuff to me, it's messy and it stinks. I just want to have a pure, unadulterated relationship with you. See, standing before God, trying to show him our righteous actions and our good deeds, it's just not going to look good. God's going to go, no, I don't want that. But see, the religious people, we like to have a checklist that, that kind of gives us a way that, okay, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. But God says religious stinks. See, Mark Driscoll says it this way. He talks about what religion does to us. He says, religion will always cause despair because the harder you try and do things, the further behind you get. Trying to keep the self-prescribed checklist, what do you end up saying? Many of us say, I can't do it. And so what happens? You become despairing and ultimately many people leave the church because they can't do the right things enough. The despairing will leave the church the prideful who can keep the list, they'll become leaders in the church oftentimes and try and control everything. So you despair or you become very prideful. I made the list. I'm like Paul, man. Check it off. I become an arrogant, prideful person because I do what the Bible says. Wow. I can't believe that. They don't have very good self-control. And pretty soon we begin to do what? We become like Satan and we accuse and we attack in the church, outside the church because it's based on pride. The very sin that removes Satan from heaven and Christ's domain and God's domain, we begin to envelop in ourselves because we keep our lists. See, religious teaches there's two kinds of people. There's good, like me, like you, and there's bad, like all the others. Think about it. Isn't that true? 
But see, Scripture teaches this. We're all bad. Romans 3.10 says this, none who is righteous, no, not one. Verse 23 of Romans 3 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, every one of us. There's really two kinds of people, friends. There's dead that are unrepentant, or there is alive that have repented. See, Jesus came. See, we think that Jesus came to make all of us good. He didn't. Jesus came to make dead people alive. And once they become alive, then the goodness of God, as they live with Jesus and not religion, but they're connected to the vine of Jesus Christ, guess what happens? Then the goodness and the fruit of his life begin to flow out and through them. Why? Because they're changing. See, Jesus leads to humility of soul and joy in the journey. Because you realize I'm a sinner. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing that I bring to this thing except a bunch of dung. And when I really believe that and understand that, I can go, I don't have to work so hard. I can trust in and rest in the work that Jesus has done and be about becoming like him instead of doing everything for him. I just get to live with him. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Study people in the scriptures. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, Peter, Luke chapter 5, Paul, Acts 9. They had a heightened view of themselves and they were always looking around. But when they when they were brought down in the presence of God, they had to look up. And when they look up, they saw his greatness and they begin to see the reality of who they were. Quickly listen to this, Matthew 7. Jesus has given his talk on the big mountain and he says this toward almost the very end. I don't like this very much. But he says this in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Did you get that? Not everyone. Just going to say, Lord, Lord. James, James uh, too, says even the devils believe. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We've done many wonders in your name. And then I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, those of you who practice lawlessness. Wow, gentle Jesus. (laughs) Meek and gentle Jesus. He's got some strong words. What's my point? Paul, when he says in Philippians chapter 3, he says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That word know there is gnosko. It has to do, it's, there's, there's two major words in the New Testament that are used most often, most prevalent, oida, which has to do with data. I know Trina's 5'4", 100 pounds, um, multicolored hair. You know, all those, those are, those are the facts, okay? But now I can move to this gnosko, and I can say I know her intimately. I don't know stuff about her. I know her. And it has a sexual connotation. Paul says, I want to know Jesus that way. Now, Jesus says this. This is is the omniscient one, you know, the all-knowing guy? Jesus? God? He he knows him, but he doesn't know him intimately. What do you mean, Terry? There comes a time where I'm convinced that we have to let Jesus in to our lives. It isn't just that we call on him. (laughs) But you better let him in. Because if you don't, you're never really going to know him. And Jesus seems to be saying here, "If, if, if, if I don't know you, that's as much as the exchange as anything else. You can say, you know me. But if you're not intimately involved with me, 
growing in me, walking with me, loving me. And removing yourself from a religious relationship. You might want to check your stats. You might want to check, as First Peter says, to make sure that you're in the faith. Twenty ten. How are you doing with Jesus? Are you resting and trusting in Creekside, or just kind of doing stuff? Or are you growing in Jesus Christ? Are you walking with Him? Because this is the last thing. Will I match what I believe in the way that I live, or will I match the way I live to what I believe? I got. I'm not going to spend much time. I'm just going to close with this thought. Paul believed what he thought was right. And then when he came to Jesus, that all changed. And he had to reorient his thinking to what Jesus said, not to what Paul thought. What did Paul do? Paul corrected back to two things. He corrected back to Jesus and his word, the one that called him. See, it's so easy for us loved ones to correct back to a radio or TV or a Creekside preacher or a book or a friend, and we correct our life back to that instead of correcting back to what? Jesus and his word. Because he's the one that matters. Our beliefs will always produce our behavior, loved ones. And that's why Jesus is never hard on us. He's always challenging us, wooing us calling us to him, to walk with him. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, if I was a man pleaser, I wouldn't be pleasing God. And he says this word that spoke to me this two weeks ago. He said, if I still pleased men. Can I tell you what? Paul was a man pleaser. You know why he was a man pleaser probably? Because he was always doing this religious junk. But once he moved from his religious stuff, then his focus said, I'm going to please Jesus and that's all that matters. We want to correct everything back to Jesus. See, the proof of God's love for you, loved ones, is that he died for us. The proof of our love for him is that we live for him and are transformed by his presence.